time lapse. This is State of Demand Gen. Hey everyone, it's Chris Walker and welcome back to the State of Demand Gen podcast. If you haven't heard already, we are back for season two of Demand Gen Live featuring Megan Bowen at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 Pacific. We are leaning in hard to the AMA style, so what that means is that we will set the floor with a couple key topics, timely, relevant, experiments that we literally just ran this morning that we figured something out that we can share with you and then we'll transition to the AMA style so you get on you ask your question a lot of other people demand marketers salespeople are on there asking questions you can learn a lot get to meet people build a little community maybe get a new job whatever you want to accomplish we're doing it in demand and live so would highly encourage you to check it out and now to this episode so by request which was not part of my plan, but I know how to improvise was the topic. And, and if you notice the, um, the, the topics on the agenda right now, I'm in a little frame where I'm for, uh, want to cover a lot of how to's I want this to be very actionable, um, for people to take away and go and do something with it. And so we're going to stay in that. Like, we'll obviously when the questions come, we'll go in a bunch of different directions, but for the agenda side, um, want to get more tactical and actionable on that. So I'm going to close the participants here and we are going to cover how to balance performance and brand, um, which is a fascinating topic. If you really think about it, because brand drives the most demand, like, I, I don't know what else to say. Um, and so when people think about brand and performance, there's like these pie charts about people, about how they model it. Some people are running 100% performance. Some people are running, I think the common mix is sort of, sort of like 80% performance, 20% brand or whatever you would read in a, in a marketing book and in more like traditional B2C books, they would call it brand and activation and activation would be 40 to 60% and brand would be the other half of the pie. And for, for me, I think it, the starting point is how it's defined. Um, and so I, though, I think the way, and I'm going to set my definitions up front because I don't think that my definitions are the same as how everyone else sees it. And so for, for brand, like we're running brand executions and measuring, understanding what their impact is on demo requests, but not measuring it solely against that outcome. And so it comes down to how you measure it in my view, like in um, performance, it's going to be cost, cost per action. I'm going to give you something and then I'm going to measure how many people do whatever I desire to do. And on brand, I find it to be more organic, multiple uses, different things like that. And so the balance ends up striking to me, the balance ends up striking based on how your metrics are set at the top. If your metrics are based on MQLs, you are going to run and it's a high volume of MQLs and you define it like most companies do, which is basically contact information that might be able to firmographically fit into your ICP somehow that didn't take a lot of actual buying activity actions. That's how most people will define it. If that's the case, you are go- and it's a heavy volume, you're going to run a lot of performance because that's the only way to get there. And if you have different metrics like revenue, cost per SQO, um, things that are later funnel, I find that you tend to lean a lot more on the quote-unquote brand side meaning that you wouldn't be doing a brand activity if you didn't think that it impacted revenue. You just don't, you recognize that you may not be able to measure it at that specific level of detail. 
and we'll get into some stuff because we're figuring out some really awesome stuff later about how we're able to measure brand executions on an Instagram story ad and how that influences view through later desktop conversions. And I know that those impressions matter a lot, both on click and view through. And so um, that's kind of... I'm not sure I'm giving everyone like an awesome answer here because I think it's really dependent, but it ultimately comes down to how it's, how it's the metrics that are set. Um, so what would you balance? Like I will, I'll give you an example of how we balance it for a company today, $40 million ARR SaaS. Um, when we started their media budget was 100% performance to ebook downloads, $120,000 a month to ebook downloads on Google and LinkedIn. And that's not that much different than what most SaaS companies are doing of that size and that media spend. And now, so that's 100% performance, 0% brand on the media spend. Right now, we spend about 98% I would classify as brand. And 2% on performance because they have some webinars, they have some virtual events, they did a ebook that they wanted to run some promotion so they could run those things. And whatever it is, 5K a month is set aside to do those things. And the other 115K is running what I consider brand, which is we are doing these things to educate buyers. We are, we are measuring it and at the best we can to know that it's driving a business impact, but we are not looking for the direct response attribution and channel attribution to the revenue in Salesforce. We are doing it to move people through a buying cycle, which becomes very important in a, in a B2B complex B2B situation. Um, and when we've made those changes over the past nine months, their SQOs have gone up almost 300%. And so um, not to say that that just how the media is allocated or just how it's measured, there's a lot of different pieces of the formula, what you're putting in, how good the content is, how it's formatted, how you're optimized for mobile versus desktop. Um, how the, how the channels are getting broken out, how you're measuring those things, how you, how the feedback loop is happening. This is where momentum comes into play that I keep talking about is like that all didn't happen in month one. When you try, when you have a team of 15, 20, 30 people and trying to get all those different pieces moving in the right way, that stuff takes time. Um, but over a, over a six month period, being able to move the bar from 300K ARR a month in new net new qualified pipeline to 2 million a month. And then you stack that over and over and you continue to build on that. That's a meaningful movement by, by essentially changing the way that you measure marketing. And so I'll pause there. Maybe there's some thoughts. Maybe that sparked a couple of questions through the chat blowing up. Otherwise, I will segue directly into kind of like part two here, which is how we've started to figure out how to to at least have a sense on our brand executions of what it's meaning from at a performance level. It's starting to get really confusing with the terminology here, but would love to share that um, unless we have any questions that have come through. Well, Damien and uh, what he submitted asked, uh, what is a reasonable expectation for performance marketing in terms of time to see results? Um, and so just kind of expanding on, on what you just said. Yeah. Again, so the, the definition for me of performance marketing is, is I am doing something and expecting that outcome right now. And so that is going to drive some type of conversion action. I want you to submit this form. I want you to download this ebook. I want you to um, call this number. Uh, whatever that 
activation step is. That's how you measure the success of that thing. Um, the thing with performance marketing, if you're doing it in a product-led user acquisition focused model, like it works. If you're doing it in a hundred K um, ACV, like enterprise SaaS play with a sales motion behind it, what you're going to do is create a lot of short-term top of funnel metrics that don't actually materialize to th the things that you want. Because there's a difference between getting someone into the product and letting them do that versus getting someone's contact information and then having them go through a 180 day sales cycle. And so um, in terms of it, in terms of performance marketing and results, it ultimately ends up to how, what you quantify as the result. If you're looking for revenue, for a complex sale from performance marketing, it's going to take a really long time. Uh, Cause I go in and audit the companies that do it and they close, they generate 3000 MQLs a month and might close one deal from that. And so, um, and then if you're in product led, like, and you're in a big TAM and you have it figured out on AdWords or Facebook or wherever you need to figure it out, you can get people into the product and they move through the product led flow into a paying user. Um, and there's a big TAM, you can just start moving. And those, that stuff is pretty cool. Um, so again, there's very, uh, a lot of nuances, which is what I love about these types of questions is that you can get into that. And so it really depends on, on the type of the, the business and where it, where that type of marketing fits in the most. I think that a lot of company, when you think about performance marketing, it started in direct to consumer e-com because it was very clear to know that you spent $8 to acquire that customer and they gave you $28 of profit and you made $20 of profit and you're going to keep running that machine until it doesn't work anymore. Cause you're literally just printing money and new customers as you do it and getting paid to do it. And so that makes sense. And then it found its way into some form of, of SAS. And if you do it with a sales action, then it's going, it's going to be really low efficiency. And so what people have done is migrated it to an ebook. So their CPA looks better. Their cost per lead looks better. And, and so it's weird how you see certain marketing trends move into different types of spaces where they don't belong. Does that answer your question, Damien? Any follow-ups there? Yeah. Yeah. Let's chat. Get on here. Yeah. I think it's, um, you know, you're, you're basically confirming a lot of the thoughts that I had on performance. Um, when I have these conversations with some of these folks and uh, CEOs and, and business leaders, you know, what they're hoping for is this B to C movement in a B to B world. And I, it's just, it's so hard for me to just bite my tongue and say, Hey, we can't just be a uh, pumping things to eBooks and expecting it to, to work out. What about so, the, what, tell me more about the company and then we can go more detailed. Yeah. So it's, um, I work in two different areas. One is uh, healthcare where uh, you have some experience in and uh, med device. And the other area is uh financial services like fintech mm -hmm. and so expensive sales motion product no so high exactly. acb sales motion behind it um correct so this is this is fascinating um what's what stage how how mature is this organization i'm guessing that's um, for early yeah early yes <laughs> it's funny um how early it's definitely pre-b um it's it's fascinating because you, if you talk to enough people, you can start to see the patterns and I can almost like know that that's happened. People in the series CDE don't say those things because they've already tried them and they realize that they don't work. The people in series A and B don't know that yet. 
And so it's really, it's really interesting to do, to do that. Um, which is why we've stopped moving to that or, um, that size and maturity of organization, mainly because the expectations are 100% unrealistic. Um, so yeah, they think that they're going to come in and they're going to have a 180 day sales cycle type of deal. And they're going to put 5k in ad spend and put one demand marketer on it when they have 20 salespeople chasing people around and can't close business. And that the one demand marketer with 5,000 in budget is going to dramatically move the needle straight away, like metrics moving up into the, like almost straight up, not even up into the right, just like, <laughs> like a rocket ship, like that stupid emoji yeah. that I see all the time. And so, <laughs> and, and so it's, it, it's really funny because in the way that I've tried to frame it up for these types of people, and maybe it'll help you is if you can benchmark your cost per SQO and your cost customer acquisition cost on their outbound channel, which they have, and it's probably well-developed, probably at least 12 heads on that side. And, and you can benchmark how much it costs them to get a meeting, how much it costs them to get an SQO, how much it costs them to get a customer. Then you have a realistic expectation and you can also measure sales cycle and average deal size and conversion rates through the funnel on that, which gives you a baseline to say, okay, if you want, if you want to spend $5,000 a month right now, it's costing us on our outbound for our enterprise SaaS company. It's costing us $6,000 to get an SQO and it's costing us $39,000 to get a customer. And so if you're going to give me $5,000 a month in a 180 day sales cycle, I'll be lucky to get you one customer in a year. And then you can start to frame And that's where it's funny because we all, um, at this point I've learned enough to say that to the series, a company that wants to work with us. And it, uh, ironically pushes them away, which is funny. Like it, it just by me saying that it, they disqualify themselves, um, which has been funny. Um, so yeah, what, what else you got would be happy to share, but like, those are that, that's what I, that's what I see. And so, um, those, yeah, you, you basically nailed it. That's, that's pretty much the conversation we had and tried to redirect them to, you know, what you need to be doing now to build, mm -hmm. to get what you're actually looking for, because the way this transactional uh, focus, it doesn't actually work. So I think you're right. And they kind of end up moving away from, from you anyway, because they're not, that's not what they're looking for. Yeah. And even to, to be clear, even on the B2C side where there's direct transaction revenue, there is, there are plenty of customers, the companies that run performance marketing and lose money every time they acquire a customer because they are assuming that people are going to repeat orders six times and they don't. Com companies that are selling a $29 product on Instagram are not acquiring that customer for $29. And so, and, and then the $29 product minus the margin, minus the overhead, minus the advertising expense, they're underwater, but they're assuming the LTV and the brand lift that they can get to a place where it's driving more organic because so many people have the product, they're telling their friends, there's different things. And sometimes it materializes and sometimes it doesn't. And so even when you have this, like, um, this place where executives think that it's even in B2C, even those companies might bleed money on the ads. So I, I personally like selling complex B2B software over these types of things, not using performance marketing because there is enough margin to create an, a, a customer acquisition cost that is much lower than the sales channel and still very acceptable for the business. Um, but normally companies have to get to a certain stage where they, they realize that the outbound channel is not going to scale and they need to figure this stuff out.
And so when you're at, um, it's I think I have something typed up a post about this, but it's really interesting. When you're 400 K ARR, you can get away with super low efficiency outbound. You can even get away with it up in, you know, five, $10 million. And at, at some point, um, there's too much, the, the revenue gross number to hit the same type of growth rate gets too big and it, and it, and it doesn't work. So growth slows down. Um, and, and so eventually companies figure out that they need to go in a different way. Um, and I, you know, recommend to people that they figure it out sooner than later, but everyone has their own, um, type of journey. But in general, it is a, um, a misunderstanding about the, what's required to make a marketing engine work like that. Re- that's really what it is. Um, because it's not one demand marketer in $5,000. <laughs> cool, man. Great question. Good to see Jess, you. Jess just popped a question in the chat. Yes, Jess, we're counting on you. So let's bring her back on. Touching on brand marketing and LinkedIn. And we have some fun LinkedIn questions that got submitted in advance too. Yep. So this is a nice bridge. <laughs> um, it, yeah, so it, it's more around how if you can convince the company that moving away from just being um, MQLs and you want to look tighter revenue and all that, and you want to say that we're going to do all this more work on uh, organic LinkedIn and build up that audience and community and make sure that it's the right ICP that we're um, targeting and they're the ones that are doing all the commenting. When you do your monthly reporting, how can you communicate that we are tracking that way without it being like, is there anything you can do to sort of make it like pull out some of the individual comments to show these are the kind of things people are saying Mm -hmm. or just tracking like of the LinkedIn followers we've got these ones seem to fall within Mm -hmm. our ICP as far as industry or how do you quantify it? How big is the business? Just in general range, like order of magnitude, 5 million, a hundred million. Uh, about 10. Okay. Yeah. So at 10, at 10 million, the marketing mix is probably not that complex, but it's probably complex enough. Like our marketing mix is super easy and I believe in this. And so if somebody gets to me from LinkedIn or the podcast or YouTube, it doesn't matter to me. Um, because it's all, I consider it all part of the same mix. Like I don't care about channel attribution because all of the touch points matter and it's all part of the same formula. I'm already recording this. I might as well put it on YouTube. I'm already recording it. I might as well chop it up and put it on LinkedIn. I'm already recording it. I might as well put it on a podcast. And so it's all the same to me. I think when it um, when it comes down to like the overall marketing mix, I, I fall back on the exact same advice I give to everyone, which is how many people are coming to you to buy becomes the business lever. And so how many people are filling out the demo form? How many people in the ICP are filling out the demo form and then moving to SQO. Those would be like your business metrics that you track over a three, six, nine month period to see trends, knowing that there are other parts of the mix. And then at the channel level, you're measuring um, qualitative engagement of the comments is great. Who's commenting? What are they saying? Are they in the ICP? Are they consistently engaging? Are they watching videos? Do we believe that the videos that we're showing are helping change their perception about something that matters to our business? Um, Who's following us? Who's liking the post? Um, it's, it's, It's very qualitative, which is why executives have trouble understanding it. Um, I don't, yeah. I don't truly believe in like the follower count growth. I just don't see that 
mapped. It's almost like website visits. It doesn't map directly to any real business outcome. Um, so that's, that's how I would look at it. The second thing is that like for, for me, I got immediate confidence because 50% of the inbounds come through a DM, not through a form. And so I know it came from LinkedIn. And the third, the third thing that you can do is you can ask like, um, whoever's on, I mean, if you, for people listening, if you have gong, you can pull out LinkedIn podcasts, what you can pull out terms and start to look, um, on recorded calls or you sit on the call and you, and you listen. Like I knew that Facebook ads were working in 2015 because sales reps would tell me that they go into cold discovery calls with customers and they say, we see your ads all the time on Facebook. And I was like, I guess it's working. (laughs) And so those are like three different approaches, business level. If it's really moving, you should see that. But if you have a lot of inbound flow coming from other channels, it might get watered down. You wouldn't be able to notice that. Like that's something that we go in a different direction. here. that's something we noticed as well. This is sort of off topic, but sort of on topic is like we were running stuff for a client. Um, We were spending 40 K a month on, on Facebook and they were spending 250 K a month on AdWords and they were driving like, $3 CPA low volume garbage into the demo form. And we're over here generating good demos, but they're generating whatever 20,000 garbage demos or free trial signups a month. And we're putting up whatever it is. Let's just say it's 500 demos. So we're putting up 800 demo requests and you don't even see it because there's so much noise. Um, and so if there's a lot of noise in your funnel, it might be hard to see the two or three ones that come through LinkedIn, which was why I would default to qualitative metrics on the channels and other channels working and then probably ask in discovery calls or listen, you, you would hear that type of stuff. I can't tell you, I, I don't say any, I don't prompt anyone. I don't ask them. I don't do anything. And it always starts. I was listening to your podcast and I was been, been binging your LinkedIn content and I would love to talk about this. And so people will. If the content's good, people will tell you. What do you think? Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. And I think it needs to, you need to have those business metrics. But I, I guess from my question was more around, yeah, you want to have those sort of leading indicator type mm-hmm. things, which is at the channel level. And if you've con- just convinced the business into doing in this method, they want to go, well, how can we see whether or not LinkedIn has started working, even if we haven't seen it return in um, revenue yet? So mm-hmm. it's just, by, you know, if, if it is these something that someone said that they listen to the podcast, like where does that information ever get stored to be able to say, look, this stuff is working. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we measure quantitative data. Like I know what the podcast subscriber is. I know how that's broken up between Spotify, Apple and others. Um, I know which episodes get more viewership than others, but it's really dependent on post time and different things like that. I know how many followers and what the growth is and, and what the, how the reach is tracking and how many people are engaging and how many average comments I have and how that's differed from six months ago. And so like, I look at all of those different numbers, which give you a data point. Um, but those data points, if they become like the North star can actually have you do the wrong things to move those metrics. Right. And so, um, it sort of goes, I mean, it's kind of off topic, but I'll riff on it while we're here, which is part of the agenda, which is, and we can talk about it in LinkedIn, but it also works in other channels is how to build an agile content framework. Right. And so like the idea on this one is how do you put something out and then use what you get back to fuel future. 
And so it's, it's super interesting and it's sort of meta in the way that we're doing it right now because I'm getting, I'm getting questions, I'm answering them, I record it, I put it on LinkedIn, I get 30 comments from other people that hear my point of view, and then I can go back, I refresh my point of view. I was like, okay, what I said there was not the right messaging, it didn't hit, this one worked, this one didn't. You start to move inside of the comments as well, you get questions, you get objections, you get haters, you get people that saying you're great, you get all of it. Um, and so you can, you can use that feedback to then fuel the content in like real time. I was doing that a, a very long time ago, five or six years ago on Facebook ads when the engagement was different than it is right now. And so doing that is different than, it's sort of like for me, the death of the 12 month content calendar. Like how do you know what ebook you're gonna make six months from now? Um, and I think so people plan, plan it out. And the reason that they plan it out is based on company strategic priorities versus what the audience is telling them. 100% off topic from your question, but I just wanted to slide that in there. Thanks, Jess. Appreciate you. Hope to see another question back in a little bit. Cool, cool. There was some good ABM stuff in here. Another thing, while, yeah, while, we pull, while we pull a question, I just wanted to get something in on the brand or performance thing. Um, I, I, tr I truly believe what I'm about to say, which is that I people people, especially inside of companies, do not like running things that get tagged with the word brand because it's something that marketers have used to not be accountable for results for a very long time. Um, it's also something that marketers have used to, um, that haven't been effective. People tell me all the time, they chalk up their trade show as a brand execution, which then can justify them wasting a bunch of money or, or, you know, whatever else is happening. And so, um, if you, if you can, the way I know that I'm not going to change the world's perspective on this, but if you can shift your perspective about what a brand execution really is, um, I think that might open up for some people to, to under, understand. I think it's more comes down to the measurement than anything. Should we jump into some more questions? Would love to. Um, I saw Alex come on. There's a, there's another waterfall we can talk about. Oh my gosh. <laughs> hey Alex, you want to read your question? You, Good to see you. Usually when Alex asks, asks a question, I have like right away, I'm like, I know how I'm going to answer, but these ones I did, I didn't have that feeling. Uh, wait, 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 Alex, did you get a haircut? I did, yeah. <laughs> looking good, looking sharp. Oh. Appreciate it, appreciate it. <laughs> I'm cooking at the same time, so apologize for the... Nice, multitasking. That's right. Um, okay, it's this one's a little vague, um, but purposely. So can you walk us through a media buying waterfall? Um, and what inputs do you use to form your strategy? So I guess if you really wanted to put some, some rails around this, it's assume, you know, the sweet spot, the B2B SaaS, call it A series or B series if you'd like. Um, but maybe no previous media buying strategy before. There may, may be new marketing function added to the organization. It was all outbound led before. Mm -hmm. And so as a new marketer, you're kind of tasked with, all right, we're willing to set, set aside some media budget, but how much and where? Um, so wh where do you start with your inputs to, to kind of form that strategy? Knowing that it's an iterative process always, but, mm -hmm. but at least at the first go. 
Yeah, it's a fascinating question. The first step for me is taking a hard look of whether or not there's existing demand or not. I think that's the first step, which will drive your channels into intent channels or to awareness channels. If there's a lot of existing demand, paid search, SEO, review sites, you know, where, you know, six cents intent data, whatever. Um, for most, for a lot of companies, even that's not enough because they don't, those channels are mature and expensive. And so like, even for companies that do have a lot of search demand, like, is it cool to sell a 40 K ARR, um, SaaS product with a 12 month advertising CAC payback? Not really. How else could you spend that $40,000? You know what I mean? And so, cause just because paid search for certain industries is incredibly expensive and incredibly competitive. Um, and in order to even have that materialized through the funnel, you need to put a lot through and there's a hundred dollar clicks. You can see how that math ends up playing out. Um, and so I typically lean on create demand no matter what, because I think that it's more, I just think it's more effective, um, in, in most situations, not all. And so when you think about create demand, the next thing is who am I trying to get to? And then can I get, and then what are the channels that are most effective to get to? If it's 15 to 19 year olds, TikTok ads, like it just, um, and if it's, you know, um, 45 to 75 year old B2B people, I, Facebook is the place, like if fa Facebook is the place, regardless of how people think, um, especially given the difference in the CPM cost between those two platforms. Um, and if you're going super low TAM, super small TAM executive buyer, small buying committee, then I would go um, LinkedIn, super narrow targeted. And so anyway, those are some examples, but so it's, it's, is there demand or not? And then which, who am I trying to get to? What is the most effective channel to get to that demographic? Um, it's actually like not that much different, um, between it's just like, are you less than 45 or not? And then how much are you willing to spend on the different channels and how much scale do you need between the channels? And then from there, it's, what am I trying to accomplish? And so then I say, okay, what am I trying to accomplish? I'm, I'm trying to sell to, um, project managers at tech, at tech companies, whatever. Um, and so how, and I, what I want them to do is I want them to know about what our product does and the specific feature that nobody else has. Cause we're competing with monday.com and all these different places and they do not solve this pain point. So I want that. I want everyone to know, which is a huge total addressable market about this one feature then I am going to run Facebook feed and Instagram feed and Instagram story ads targeted at all of those people highlighting that specific feature to a product page that discusses that exact feature. And so you can think, you can sort of see how I went through that progression audience, audience drives channel and then objective and then objective drives kind of like content, creative destination landing page and, and objectives. And, and then you just feed it all back. If the same, if you have the same thing and it's like, I want everyone to know about the, about this new study that we, like I did one that I, it was actually the first time I ever ran a B2B Facebook ad actually, um, where we had a clinical trial come out and it had been out for 18 months and none, I went and talked, I had sales meetings with people that we were trying to sell to and none of them knew about it. And I knew that the market was huge. And so I took that clinical study and I, put a little write up about it and I linked to it and I ran Facebook ads to the entire market. 
And at that point I paid like $500 for the entire market to know that that study came out. And it was, so it was just like, um, that was my objective and, and that was what I was trying to accomplish and I did it. And so again, and this is a lot for, for younger companies and it goes into Damien's question as well, especially in paid social, not every objective should be a, a demo request or a lead. If you're selling complex SaaS, like you need to break away from that model or you're not going to get the results that you want. And I think you had a second one or maybe you have a follow up, but I always, uh, I always enjoy these little, this time we have together on Tuesdays. <laughs> <I appreciate it. laughs> um, yeah. The second one was more about uh, team, team structure that, that I've seen personally. And it, it goes to your point about balance, the balance between performance and brand. So um, some companies structure their marketing function and they kind of separate the team, maybe not equally in two parts, but certainly in two parts. And so one part will be performance or they'll call it uh, life cycle, um, something mm-hmm. like this. And then the second part of the team separate to them will be, will be called ABM. And so the ABM team. And I, I don't have that structure. I've never been in a structure like that, but I always wondered like why, like what is the benefit to that? Is basically one team just working on like larger accounts and then the other team is just working on an SMB segment or something like this that they need to split it up like is it really that can the marketer not can the marketers not work up and down the full life cycle in this manner um, I'm just curious like why companies would set it up that way <laughs> if you've seen it um, I, I personally don't um, understand the distinction but again I don't like really know all that much about what's going on at the company like for instance, I do see a place where this structure works, but it's a very specific place. And so um, let's say we have 50 accounts that are all worth 10 million ARR plus, and then the rest of this market we're selling, those huge market we're selling to is 30K ACV. At that point, I would have my my like team, my ABM team, subject matter expert. Like I would have a separate team that is built around just marketing to those accounts. Um, but you could see how extreme that split is that I don't think that it fits for most organizations to do it that way. Um, and so my feeling would be, no, I've also seen companies that have, um, demand focused on capturing existing demand. The demand team is focused on capturing the demand and they have the brand team focused on creating demand, which I don't think is a logical or correct structure either. Um, the, 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 the demand team must be able to create demand, not just capture it. And, and so I think that you get into a, it gets you into a really scary place. If your brand team is focused on creating demand, cause brand normally means organic channels unmeasured. Um, and so you end up with a team that's really capable of capturing the demand. And then eventually there's only so much demand because your brand team's not creating enough at a high enough rate. And so I don't see that that distinction either. I, I mean, I think the right, uh, the, the split that I've been thinking about most recently is about is capture versus not, but I wouldn't call it demand and brand. I think that's semantics, but there's a, it's truly a, in my view, a different skill set to capture demand versus create it. Um, and so that would be an interesting way to look at it. If you're selling a, a, a ACV, that's not super dynamic. Because then you have one team, search, conversion rate optimization, lead handoff optimization, sales process optimization. 
How do we get the calendar in the demo form? How do we make that happen? How do we make the routing happen? How do we follow up in five minutes? Like that is, that's some interesting stuff. Review sites. Where do we, how do we get trust radius reviews onto our dynamically inserted onto our website based on the keyword that someone searched, whatever, there's a bunch of shit that you could do. And so that's one job on its own. And then you have the other job. It's, it's challenging when you split the teams out as long as the person overseeing it makes sense because one team is incentivized to convert as many people as possible, which may not be the actual people that you want to convert. But then on the other side, you have this, this create demand team, which is much heavier, um, much heavier content, social and awareness channels, organic channels, potentially PR. Like that's an interesting split to me. I like that. Cool. Cool. Thanks. All right, brother. Good to see you. Got a question submitted to me directly that I think is building on this. Um, and I don't, there might not be an answer, but for a traditional B2B company, is there a rule of thumb of how, like how much of the budget should be allocated for like brand building for the creating demand? I don't know if there's a percentage. It's probably dependent. What, what say you? (laughs) Um, I don't (laughs) think there's a, I don't think there's a black and white answer to this. Um, the the things that come to mind is like most companies, like if you just take a back of the napkin kind of stroke, will spend 10% of revenue on marketing, which is an interesting kind of like interesting budget allocation. If you look at how much they, how much that would be allocated to sales, which is often, and, and that 10% often becomes six and the sales allocation becomes somewhere between 30 and 60%. And so you have this very, you can have these very um, huge discrepancies in how that budget is allocated between the two based on some textbook that was written in 1998. (laughs) Based on an investor giving you advice the last time they operated a company was in 2001. And so um, I think that's where it gets it gets most scary and I'll try and get to the brand side, but I'm going to cover this just a little bit more. And I'm, I think I've covered it a couple of times, but like if you're in a, if you're in a company and you in, if you're in a privately owned company, you can usually in public ones, you can get to the PL, you can understand cost of sales and you can understand how the commercial budget is allocated. Like I've looked at PLs and I've been like, okay, so we spent 3 million on marketing and we spent 39 million on sales something doesn't feel right here. And, and marketing drove 40% of revenue and sales drove 60 sourced. Obviously it's a team, obviously it's a team. Um, but when you look at that, the cost to acquire customers between the two is ridiculously different. And so how could you kind of like break the model or break out of the textbook and look at what's happening today and make adjustments? Um, on the brand side, I think it's based on stage execution, skills, um, company demographics like ACV and TAM and um, buyer personas and different stuff like that. And so I don't, I don't think there is a black and white um, answer to that. For, for me, I think that the, if I was like, let's just say I came in and I'm operating a, you know, I'm coming in, I'm operating, we are a series C company that just raised $65 million the first thing I'm doing is figuring out how to make the paid go as hard as it can. And then I'm going to layer on organic from there. 
because the paid is the thing that's going to get you the stuff that is the, it's the fastest you can get in organic. You're waiting for people to follow you or discover you or different things like that in paid. You can target them and just go get them. And so if you think about it less like a lead gen and more of like, like a lot of the stuff that we do for companies is the same thing that I do on LinkedIn, except that we are, we have to reformat the content to be delivered through paid. And then we guarantee delivery to everybody. How nice would it be if you're selling to whatever I'm running out of examples here, um, chief information security officers. And you know, you know that there are 50,000 in the U S and there are 10 things that you want to tell them. And over the next 10 weeks, you tell them one thing every week and you guarantee delivery of all that information. And, and I, if you do it the right way, somewhere between two and 3000 of those people, which is like four or 5% will click and engage and consume that information. And you build block by block and you, over time, you change someone's perception about whatever you're trying to do. And so this, be, it becomes very much more a game of, of psychology and education than math and performance. So we have a bunch of LinkedIn questions. I think we're we going to do uh, we, a segment, segment of demand gen live, which is like the rapid, rapid LinkedIn. Yeah. You ready for this? <laughs> sure. A, a few of them are from people that submitted, but it, it doesn't look like they're on yet. So I can read a couple of them. And then cool, cool. Um, our friend John has one where we can bring him on at the end. So I feel like I have to ask Bob's question on his behalf because he would be here if he could. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just uh, dealing with a company webinar tonight. <laughs> Um, he wanted to know your thoughts though on the LinkedIn algorithm and recent changes. He has been posting videos of his new podcast, but it's not getting any engagement. Um, and it really happened about a month ago is when he Mm -hmm. started seeing the drop, um, a fraction of the views previously, um, since they made the change with stories, wanted to know your thoughts, if you should be taking a different approach. (sighs) So I don't know what the driver is. It was around the time that stories launched, but also other things happened. Like people with small people with larger followings um, started to have less reach. Um, it happens on both text and on um, video for that matter. It just feels more dramatic on video because the video views are actual views, not impressions on a text post. And so, yes, do have do my really good videos that used to go for eight to ten thousand views and four to a thousand four hundred to a thousand likes and comments um, now go for twelve hundred views and forty to fifty likes and comments? Yes, that's what's happening right now. Um, my text posts get less traction. Definitely not the ones that with like the rocket ship that takes off for a million views. That stuff doesn't at least hasn't happened for me in a while. Um, so there's, there's, it's, it's impossible to deny that things are changing. And so our job is to, is to adjust to the reality of the platform. The platforms will change. And so there's two decisions that you need to make. Um, the first one is how much do you want to stretch to the algorithm? Because when you stretch the algorithm, you usually move out of the, the thing that was working, right? So I'm staying true to video because LinkedIn is a, it's a smart company. LinkedIn will realize is how important video is long-term. And I believe that the, that the value of a four minute video 
view is far better than a three second impression on a text post. And so I, I continue to lean into video despite the fact that my, the viewability of a video is down somewhere between 50 and 75%. And so that's, that's one piece like, and it's, it's just how platforms mature. Uh, if people were posting videos on Instagram in 2014, or I'm not even sure if they had videos back then, they're posting a picture in 2014. It was, it's a lot different than if you went in with no followers and posted right now. LinkedIn, I mean, Instagram, you have to have incredible content and a ton of shareability to have any shot of breaking out right now because it's just saturated. Um, and so LinkedIn is not at that place, but this is it. And it's never a sharp drop. Like this feels sharp but it's not really that sharp. Um, platforms decline gradually. And over time, um, LinkedIn will make the algorithm prioritize ads as they try and make more ad revenue and they're gonna have to play that game. Um, and so I would, st- I would personally stay the course, um, but I would also be looking for other avenues to distribute content and I would be mixing in more text and also, like if we had Bob on here, I would talk, how many followers do you have? How, what is your connection strategy? How many, follower, how many followers or connections are you adding every week? Because if you, if you don't have an active strategy to build an audience and you're just waiting for people to come find you and follow you, um, then over time, you probably will have results decline. So let's take this a step further from David. I'm curious what you would do, Chris, if LinkedIn changed their algorithm tomorrow and you lost all of your personal and refine labs reach, what would be your next play? It's a good hypothetical. (laughs) It's a, it's a really interesting hypothetical, not one that I've been asked before. Um, but to be clear for people, um, like, I was doing the same thing in 2016 on 2013 on Facebook organic to sell stuff on e-commerce in 2015 for B2B in 2016 on Instagram to sell things on e-commerce and then on LinkedIn. And so like there's when, if a platform falls down, it's did the platform fall down or just did my profile fall down as the first thing. If the platform's gone, then all the people that spend time on LinkedIn are going to go somewhere else. And I'm just going to follow them to somewhere else. Um, if it's my personal profile that's gone and everyone else is still going on LinkedIn, I would just rebuild. And I think that I would rebuild and, and be fine. And so those are, those are not the most creative answers. So I'll give some, I think I understand the nature of the question. I'll try and like give them something a little bit more. The next thing that I would go to is I would, I would, go back to the things that I'm doing right now, this zoom and podcast, and most likely maybe go and find something on a different platform like TikTok. Like those are the, those are the places. Um, but I'm, it's a really interesting, I hope it never happens. Um, but luckily if you, if while you're building, you recognize that you don't want to be stuck in one platform, like this question is a, ton more relevant, I think, for people that get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to post pictures on Instagram about brands, because that one is a single source. Um, We've been able to, as you grow, to make sure that you have other things going on. Like, I never sell to the audience. I don't make money off of the audience. Um, And so being able to um, have the audience spread out into different places, I think is critical too. I like that answer. It was a good, but in, 
in general, if you create good information and you understand distribution, there is always a place to build. Um, it's just about finding the right, the right angle and it takes some time and some creativity and some intuition and experience. But if you have something good to say and it brings value to people, then you just got to find the people and then give it to them. We're going to wrap up our LinkedIn segment. By That's it? You said a ton of questions. No, 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 no. Okay. No. Okay. Sorry. 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 <laughs> We're going to bring on John. <laughs> we have, he has two more LinkedIn questions for you. So that will conclude the LinkedIn segment. Okay. But John, come on. You, you, submitted, you submitted a couple in here. So you can ask them all. I, I did. You're very kind. <laughs> uh, a, a couple things. Chris, you, you engage on LinkedIn, obviously, a lot. And do. You, obviously, you obviously do it very well. Um, I'm, I'm curious to two things. One, um, how the hell do you do it? And in other words, how much time a day are you spending on LinkedIn and how do you chunk it or how do you approach it so it's not just sucking all your time? Not much, to be honest. I would say um, if you exclude responding to comments on my own posts, um, and, and actually publishing content and purely on engagement of other people's content, it's probably less than 10 minutes. Um, well, it's, it's the, it's the comments that you make on your own posts that I continue to be amazed with how much you can engage. Yeah. And that's, and that's like, I don't set aside time. It's like, I have three minutes between this meeting, this meeting ends early. I'm walking my dog. I'm, you know, bored before I go to bed or are those, okay. I, I squeeze them in at those types of times. I don't carve out time to do it. Um, and, and, um, normally like I do engage a lot, but like comments on my posts are oftentimes like three emojis. Um, I, the important take home here is about of us is about listening to what people are saying. So like, it's less about how I respond and more about that I read what they said. And so I think that part is really interesting that some people don't, um, don't see. Um, and then a lot of times on comments, I'm, I make a comment so that I can see what other people think about it. I, I really makes- do. And that's why they come off as like sort of extreme because I'm trying to understand how people are going to react to a point of view. I rarely comment. Congratulations, Susie. I agree with you. You know what I mean? And so like, I just, yeah. I, I have specific opinions and I want to understand how, how well, I have a ton of CMOs and marketing leaders and demand people and different stuff like that. And I really want to know how they think. So I use it a lot to test messaging, which I think is part of my job. And then if you got any big learnings from these changes to the algorithm, I mean, when I, when I started coming to demand gen live almost every day, you would be like the first thing in my feed the next day or for the next several days. Mm-hmm. And now I got to go look for you. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's definitely a lot of different things have changed. Have you guys had any big learnings thus far and playing around? Um, I, so I actually think this is a, um, something that's been in LinkedIn for a while. You just might notice it on me. Um, but if you, if when I started like getting serious about LinkedIn, you know, spring, summer of 2019, um, there were people with, um, 60 to hundred thousand followers that would post and not get a ton of traction. I actually think that it's sort of built into the algorithm. I also over time had people come in 
and then would be very engaged and then would exit. And I think that is a common flow, not because they're getting bored of my content. I'm sure some people are getting bored, but I don't think that's the core reason. I think that, that they get the engagement. And then if you stop engaging one, two, three times, then the algorithm starts moving it away. I think that it makes, um, that the algorithm makes fast changes based on like one or two um, impressions. It's just a complete guess. Um, but I do see ebbs and flows about how people enter and exit my content. Um, nothing, I don't think any tangible insights there. Um, but that's what I'm seeing. In addition, like as, as more people publish content, it becomes more competitive. I brought, I brought this up uh, and, and may the best content win. Um, and so I brought this up as like, is, people, I hear the objection a lot. I don't want to start a podcast or, or because there's too many people already doing it, or I don't want to post on LinkedIn. There's already a million marketers posting on LinkedIn. I don't want to do it, but I'll blog. (laughs) And I'm like, did you realize that there are 500 million active blogs and only a million people posting on LinkedIn and only 500,000 active podcasts? And so, and then if you actually niche down to your specific thing, it is way less competitive in these new channels than the mature old channels. And so LinkedIn will move into a place where it becomes more mature, um, where there's a lot of content. And when there's a lot of content, normally a, more bad content enters the feed and more ads enter the feed and people start to not pay attention. And people will over time find somewhere new. It could be a Zoom, it could be a Slack community, it could be a new social platform. Perhaps I've always had this theory that there will be like um, niche down verticalized like mini LinkedIn's that are owned by different companies that are like the marketing LinkedIn or the, you know, this LinkedIn. I, I don't know if that's going to happen, but like I could see places where it becomes more like narrow. Bravado is kind of doing it in sales right now. I don't know much about the company. I haven't been in the platform, but I understand they're kind of like going in that direction. And so um, Slack's doing it. There's a lot of Slack channels. Yeah, the ch- the difference between um, a Slack channel and I thought about as for whatever reason I thought about this before the episode, but not based on your question, um, is that Slack channels um, do not create um, new visibility to people that do not know about you. Right, the Slack channel is locked. Um, so I guess for I guess for some way that if people come into the Slack, you can start to get that attention. I, I'm not. I'm really curious to see how that one plays out. Um, I guess it, if I think about it deeply, it's sort of the same, like someone has to be on LinkedIn in order to get exposed to the content that I post. And so, um, yeah, I would love to see how Slack plays. I know a ton of people that have their, their communities being built and people engage a lot. Um, so we'll see, we'll see how, what happens with that one. Good questions, John. Good to see you, John. That. I want to get Anna's question in before she has to go have dinner with her kids. <laughs> Let's cool, bring cool. Anna on. It's a good one. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, So my question is really it. So lately I've been getting inbound. Um, I'm a um, owner, a a founder of a marketing consultancy, and I've been getting a lot of inbound from my content that I'm posting on LinkedIn, which is great, but it doesn't always match the, my target audience, my ICP. Mm -hmm. So, um, these are small businesses there. I can help them. It's like, if I can help startups, I can definitely help these people. So I almost don't want to turn them away. Um, but then they're going to take up my time and I can't do the other stuff that 
I should be doing with my target audience. So how do you approach this? Right. So how do you, mm-hmm. do you offer them a different package, which is what I've been thinking about. It's like a, um, it's, it's something that I created already. And then they have like four calls with me and I help them. It's like a do it yourself sort of package that mm-hmm. I offer to them. Or do I just stop talking to them? How, what, what would you recommend? What, what are you trying to accomplish long-term? You're just trying to always have clients and do things that you love. Or are you trying to grow it and have multiple employees that are then like, where do you want to go? It's a great question. I do want to build this out as a business and have employees, just mm-hmm. not this year because I have two kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I see I, there's a big need and I see the, the there's just so much opportunity. But yet, so yes, I do want to build this into a business with employees. So um, the, the both answers are right. It just depends which one is right for you. And that's only a decision that you can make. And so there are two paths. Like you, you laid out both. I'll just give you more tactical on how you could do both. And so on the first one, let's just say that you do, you want to stay focused on your ICP. You have something that's working. Those people are happy. You don't want to get distracted, especially right now then the right answer for me would be to call out in your headline and your profile who you do the work for. And I would make it more clear on the website and you're not going to stop all of them. Like I still get some that are entirely not the right fits, but actually it's gone down a lot. Um, And so I think just by making it very specific would start to um, remove a lot of those inquiries that you're just not what you're looking for. You, you would think, but like my whole profile is like, I help startup founders and marketing leaders. It's completely very clear. I have the podcast I just started. That's like featuring startup founders and marketing leaders. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's pretty clear, but I do think people just don't necessarily care. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Oh, she seems like she understands marketing. So then they reach out. Yeah, but maybe and, that'll go down over time. Um, what types of startups? There could just be some confusion on the audience side. That's true too. Um, so I I do talk about like funded startups. So mm-hmm. it has to be seed fund, seed funded, Series A, Series B mm-hmm. is typically where I dabble. So I would think about saying that. Um, and who yeah. knows if it's going to super, super help, but I could see how the $1.4 million small business thinks that they're a startup, even though they're like a small bit, not a venture funded, just a small business locally. I could see that confusion from that person. And so potentially being more specific and always you can just say, Hey, like, I appreciate you reaching out. This is just not who we help. Like both of those answers are fine. Um, and I think that um, I don't know how far you are on your LinkedIn journey, but it happens early. And then for whatever reason, it goes away. <laughs> like that stuff has happened to me and now it's not, not happening. Okay. That's, um, that's what I wanted to like check. To, is this normal? It, and maybe I just need to tighten up my message and mm-hmm. it will eventually go away. Now let's say that you take the path where you do want to help them. So like I said, both paths are interesting. Like I've taken, um, I've taken stuff that was not ICP and have learned a ton, um, have learned a ton about something that I didn't know that made them fit into the model or often learned something that val- verified or something new about why it didn't work. Or 
have then opened up a new offering because it was working so well and they had value. So um, if you can go into it knowing that the core thing that's happening is you're getting paid to learn, then it becomes a very inviting opportunity as long as you don't let the actual business fail while you're doing that learning. Right. A great point. And so yeah. make them very defined, um, experiment, you can call them an experiment, a client, whatever. Um, if you really feel like there's something that you have to offer that's valuable to them that would help, I think that's like the step that you need to make. Don't, if it's just about the, the money, then I wouldn't do it. But if you feel like there's something that you can help, you just don't really know the inner workings. You haven't systemized it or different things like that. I think it's fine to, cause you were a consultant selling your expertise and like expertise, especially at a um, one person consulting, which is what I did to start, um, allowed you to open up to a lot of different things. Like I was fractional CMO for some, some companies at the beginning. And, and over time I just learned about the specific place that over, that really brought value and a specific ICP inside of that, that really worked. And so now I'm very narrow and we don't take a lot of those different turns right now because we have something that's growing super fast and all the people that we have and that we're hiring need to be focused there. Um, But over time we will continue to look and experiment. Like I'm super interested. We have two companies that are um, launching product led offerings all we've been doing is with his mid-market enterprise SaaS with sales motion behind that. Can't wait. We didn't have to go out and acquire them. Like they're just offering it. So now we get to go in and really figure this out. I actually think that it's going to be easier um, than what we do right now, but we'll, we'll see. Awesome. Thank you so much. Happy to help. Have fun with the kids. Thanks. Dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Good question, Anna. Uh, We have one more question that was submitted beforehand, which is back to LinkedIn and Facebook ads, really tactical, which I think was part of the agenda. Yep. It was. Should we, should I frame this up and you can kind of get into this? Yeah, go ahead. Um, So he's not on, but um, this is um, a, let's see what type of company is it? They're launching LinkedIn ads uh, this week. And so he's interested in targeting or ad strategies. Um, They were advised that Facebook might not work as well. Um, Could you give insight on how you target people on Facebook? Um, Our personas are CFOs and HR managers at startups with more than 100 employees. Our product is an equity management platform that helps startups manage their incentive plans, finance rounds, and investor relations. Mm-hmm. basically LinkedIn and Facebook targeting and ad strategy. Yeah. So if you could, there was a lot of like sub questions in there. So just make sure I stay on track here. Um, so the first thing is that like the idea that you can't get to these people on Facebook is just flat out wrong. Like what if you, a lot, you can do it natively. I heard the two titles, CFO, HR manager, you can get to those people and you can deal with the small amount that don't work at sub 100 companies and it well offsets the difference in CPM cost between Facebook and LinkedIn. And so going into Facebook, if you know that you're not going, that some people that see the ad may not be exactly who you're selling to and you're okay with that because it's 10 to 15 X cheaper, then you're in a pretty good spot. And so you can go in and literally without a tool like metadata or Clearbit or any of the other ones, you can literally go in and say, I want to target HR managers and CFOs and controllers and, you know, accounting managers in, in the United States 
And if you want, you can layer on an interest or you can layer on different things like that. And then you can go out and target them natively on Facebook for $8 CPM instead of 80 to 120. And so first misconception there, like, yes, there are certain people and there are certain demographics, especially industry segmented um, demographics that make it hard to target natively on Facebook. If you need that and you're spending, I would say it's the rate. If you're spending more than 25K a month um, on LinkedIn ads, you should definitely go and spend $2,000 or whatever it is per month on a tool and then start moving that money to Facebook because it's going to work way harder for you. So that's, that's one. So you're setting up LinkedIn ads. Um, what was the, what was the next part? Um, there was yeah, 10 I questions. mean, address the Facebook targeting, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, just any ideas on targeting or ad strategies for, for LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, so on, I mean, on LinkedIn, you can literally go in and say, I want to target CFOs and HR managers at companies that have greater than a hundred employees. And you can f- do all of your B2B targeting inside of LinkedIn. Um, if I were you, I would add at least one level of seniority lower, um, and make sure that the audience size is in a million, because if you haven't run LinkedIn ads before, it can get very expensive. Um, and so try to be quite narrow. Um, again, I fall back on some other advice. I truly like doing this, especially if you're, if it's not like hundred K ACV plus, I truly like figuring this out on Facebook first. The second thing, which is sort of on the agenda and then we'll go back. Cause I think I'm still missing questions is how are you going to measure it? And so, um, when you're just, when you're just booting up LinkedIn ads, you're just trying to figure out what you're going to do in the only way that this is what 100%. If you look at every single LinkedIn ad, the objective is a conversion. It is the only way that a B2B company can justify the cost of a LinkedIn ad is to have a, a lead that they can go back and say, you know, we got $50 leads or we got $300 leads. And so that's the only way that you can justify it. Um, and so if you're running your test, you're going to get forced into that bucket. Like you, there, I know I'm get, super guessing, but I'm pretty sure that um, your budget's not high enough to do anything else. And so you're going to have to run convert. And I know companies that spend $40,000 a month on LinkedIn and have very inconsistent MQL flow for ebook downloads. And that's a very expensive channel to have inconsistent, to get one lead a day, four leads a day, seven leads a day, like that are not, that are super low likelihood of even talking to your sales rep. And so that's the, I think that's the main challenge with LinkedIn is you really, you really need to kind of have, um, have a real base of understanding how to advertise on that platform. And you need to have enough budget to actually be able to do something meaningful. Like if you're paying a lot of, a lot of people that don't know what they're doing, are going to pay more than $500 a lead on LinkedIn. So you know, $500 a lead is 15 K a month, $500 a day, one lead a day would be 15 K a month. Um, which is a lot for, for most people. We've actually tackled a lot of the questions. Julian had one and I think you're still on. Ooh, actually I want to get, it was part of the agenda. I just want to get to it for people. One thing that, um, I've showed a couple, I've showed a couple of people what we're doing on, you can do it on both Facebook and LinkedIn, but, um, Facebook is just far more sophisticated in terms of how it's ad platforms built out. Um, this one's, and, and I just trust Facebook's cross device data much better. Um, but we, and you can do it in link, LinkedIn too. You can create a custom conversion based on whatever action you want on the website. So for us, it is a demo conversion. 
on the website. And then I'm going to put that into Facebook or LinkedIn, and then I'm going to measure on click-through and view-through the amount of people that do that action. On the Facebook side, you, you heard me mention, it, it can do cross-device. And so what we're seeing right now is that Jimmy over here is on the train riding around and sees our ad for our finance software and doesn't even click on it. And then within seven days, comes back on a desktop computer and searches blah, blah, blah finance company and asks for a demo. And we can track that. Never going to show up in Salesforce. You would never see it. If you didn't track it, you would think that the ads were not working. And all of a sudden it is. We do also do it in LinkedIn, but I, like I said, I do not trust LinkedIn's data to have cross device locked in enough to do it, but we're getting, you know, 50K ACV software. We're getting 800, $800 demo request, $500 demo request, $1,200 demo request. The math on those things work. Um, and so I found that to be really interesting for people that are deep in platform. It is the only path at high spends for you to be able to prove to executives that you can do something other than direct response. And so I've, I've loved that. I love going in and being like, yeah, we spent a hundred grand and there's 170 demo requests and we created this much pipeline from it. And I know that it's not showing up in channel attribution on Salesforce, but here's, here's the information. Here's how many people submitted it. Here's the difference between who saw the ad versus who clicked on it and converted very fascinating how much the actual view, if you know how to do enough work in the feed that the click actually doesn't matter that much. It's just because people are there and paying attention that you can create enough impact through high frequency, high spend, high messaging variation. Um, and over, you know, three, six, nine months really move the needle on, on what people think about your brand and your category. Um, so anyone that's running, I would say if you're running more than 25K a month on, on LinkedIn and Facebook ads combined, you should have that stuff set up. Nice. Julian, I see you. Let's bring him on and you can ask your question. Hey, what's up, guys? So I have a question about uh, ad delivery natively in LinkedIn um, mm-hmm. or Facebook versus sending people to your website for content consumption. Mm-hmm. So the two different formats then are video for native consumption and uh, you know, like sending them to an article to read on your website. And Matt and I actually had this discussion the other day and just trying to think through, or I just like to get your take on this. You know, I think there's a ton of value in uh, someone consuming a piece of content. That's like a piece of video content. Um, however long that, that will be, um, natively in the platform. The huge benefit, obviously, is they don't have to leave the platform, so the rate of consumption will just be a lot higher than if they, I sent them to my website and had them hope they consume yeah, it there. Moving someone off-site to watch a video on a paid social ad is not going to work. So your your, yeah, I mean, your instincts is right, are right there. Yeah, meaning... You know, we're we're talking about you know if we want to if we want to distribute content, do we want to do it via video natively, or do we want to send people to an article where there's the added benefit of they can check out our web they can check out the website, learn more about the product if they want to. And Matt, feel free to add anything if I'm if I'm missing anything here, but just trying to understand the different the different value propositions of those content delivery formats. So. 
if you're going to do the video in feed, it's got to be really good. Um, is pretty much what it comes down to. Like if you can think back to the amount of social ads where you have stopped and watched a three minute video, the number is very small. Like for me, it was like the, the Budweiser or the dog was like saving someone on Facebook in like 2016 is the last time I do that. I watch people try and shove testimonial zoom recordings into paid social ads on LinkedIn and spend a ton of money and no one's consuming that. And so the, the video um, quality and thoughtfulness specifically for that channel needs to be on point for that to work. I've run a lot of, I've run a lot of video tests on a lot of social platforms. It's just really hard to get someone to stop and watch three minutes of anything inside of the feed when you're paying for it and they don't follow you and they didn't, didn't ask for it. Um, and so that's something to think about. Can it work? Absolutely. Is it harder than, uh, it's a much harder creative and content lift to create that video for sure. And so what we typically lean on is short form written content that a team can much more easily get on board with. It's the same thing with a YouTube pre-roll video. Like you look at the ones that were very successful, the monday.coms and the and whoever else, Asana and different things like that. Those companies are spending $100,000 to produce the video, let alone the media on top of it. And so I think that is the the challenge with for B2B companies with in-feed video is that normally it's just like not well thought of. They usually take a video that they already have and then try and put it in and it's just not, it usually doesn't work out well. Um, also, you can also take stuff like we've done st in 2016, the format that I use on my LinkedIn organic videos is the exact same format that we would run Facebook paid videos with thought leadership. I did this in 2016 and we ran ads to it. And the, and if you can hit the headline to get someone to stop, we had some that had super good engagement, but it was way far away from the product. Yeah. It's funny you say that because it's, it's actually the exact thing we were doing. We were taking those, you know, little clips with a headline and subtitles and promoting those. Mm -hmm. And just, just to give you some, like some metrics that I was seeing is, let's say we're paying like three to $4 for someone to consume a video at 75% mm -hmm. and we're paying five bucks, $5 a click. And this was on LinkedIn, probably not the best idea there, but mm -hmm. um, I mean, you could probably re recreate something similar on Facebook. So like, I'm just trying to think through, you know, what's, what's worth more somebody watching a video for, for two minutes for three to $4 or someone going to my website for, X dollars where there is the added benefit of possibility of consuming more information about my product. Yeah. The, um, the likelihood of someone, and it really depends on the product and different stuff like that, but I've spent I've pro it's probably close to $10 million on media over the past five years on social platforms, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, and so the amount of people that click, through a social ad, which is predominantly happening on a mobile device, Facebook, I just ran the research for a CMO, it was 98.5% of the entire delivery happened on mobile. And so if you have a desktop experience, then you're it's just not going to, it's not going to work. You're going to hit 200 people for in terms of reach because no one uses Facebook on desktop computers anymore. Um, and so, and the idea that someone will go through, like click on your ad and then look at seven other pages of your website and then convert is, is just super low. 
it is just really low. People want to, I treat it like super snackable bite-sized content, knowing that all I want to do is have someone read that. And if they get through the two minutes and they consume that message, then I've done my job. And so when you set the objectives like that, the person that goes through and can the one out of whatever it is, one out of 10,000, one out of 100,000 is probably at that scale that goes through, looks at seven web pages and then asks, asks for a demo on their own, um, becomes like the cherry on top, not the expectation, which is the way I like to do it. Um, but when you try and decide between video and, and words, like it really is the quality and, and the message, right? Um, so I can call you and I can send you a text and it has the exact same thing, but perhaps in one medium versus another and how I communicate, it works differently. It's the same thing. So sorry, there's no clear, there's no clear answer because because <laughs> literally both can work. It just comes down to what, what are you trying to do? Makes sense. Thank you. Cool, man. Happy to help. Thanks, Julian. Um, Max has got a couple good questions. What's up, Max? You on. Good to have you What's here. Hey, hey. Good to be here. All right. So two questions, pretty unrelated. First is Facebook ads. So um, for us, how would you recommend like segmenting between B2B and B2C? We have both of those um, on our website. It's self-service for consumers. But um, I haven't really dug into our, our Facebook account, but it's just like um, we can't use our existing database of um, business contacts to put through like metadata and then target them. Um, and the match rate's not going to be great. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking the least path of resistance would just be retargeting based on business pages only um, run ads on those, let it build up um, an audience there and then pull some lookalikes from there. Um, it's just, there's going to be inevitably like bleeding um, between B2C and B2B, but I mean, everyone still works. So it's, it's kind of in the same bucket. Are there, are they, is the B2C side actually executing a transaction? Correct. Yes. And the B2B is filling out a form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would go, cu- I would go custom conversion route. Um, and then, so you have the demo form, build a custom conversion off that. I, it depending on what type of e-com system you're using, like you should be able to tie that back into Facebook quite easily. And then you can start to have campaigns optimized based on those different objectives if you don't give it enough data, it's not going to work. And oftentimes it doesn't work anyway, because it's just like, it's, you, you can't just build a machine where it just automatically feeds more people through. Like it just doesn't, it's not that simple. Um, but that's, that's the way that I would lean in terms of targeting. It's going to be almost impossible unless you know B2B and you can build a named account list and then you can run up to 30,000 accounts through metadata and build an audience. And then if you need to hit other personas in order to make the audience size big enough, I would do that. And then I would turn on expand audience expansion after that in, in both in metadata and in platform. And so that, that can grow your audience depending on the size by 20 to a hundred percent. And so that would be my sort of recommendation on the B2B side. And then B2C, I would just have a, have an infinite loop on conversions for that specific thing and let Facebook do its, do its thing. Yeah. Okay, cool. And there will definitely be cross, there will definitely be crossover and overlap. Um, but that's the, that's what I would do. Cool. Cool, man. Um, and then second one is going to be a quick one because I, figured it's the answer that Damien and Alex already said, but for starting out a podcast, would you start it with kind of just some like, I don't want to say test guests, but some guests that are like 
lower on your like top 10 guys just so you can kind of work out the kinks and kind of get a feel for what direction it should go yeah it was um it was funny um i'll get to your answer but it, um so i post i posted something about the podcast um about how we've been able to grow it and how we did it and different things like that and somebody came in and said yeah but chris you don't understand you already had a huge audience when you started the podcast which made the potty uh the pot the podcast grow faster and what they don't understand is that we were doing a video podcast in july of last year we just didn't post it on spotify and what we did is we just filmed the podcast and then on the micro went out for linkedin and that's how we built my linkedin profile is by doing that and so what actually happened first was it the podcast or was it the brand it was actually the podcast which built the brand which then rebuilt the actual audio podcast but the, to answer your question, I th think it's a good idea, but I don't think it's a requirement. Like there's plenty of people that have me as, you know, I'm not saying I'm big, but like um, that have me on the first episode and I'm happy to do it. And they fumble around things and they don't feel good. And it's just like, it, it just doesn't matter to me. Um, and so I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make that choice based on how the guests might perceive you. But if you feel like you need it, then that's what I did. I interviewed a ton of CMOs and VPs and different things like that and never published the actual long form content. It's on, it's on YouTube. The video is, um, but I did it to, it was when I was doing it, it was for short form for LinkedIn networking market research, not necessarily for the audio podcast initially and then practice. And it, it, yeah, so you can work out the kinks. I think like two, three, four times you really start to figure it out. And then from there, it's more so how you answer questions and control the conversation and stuff like that. When doing a podcast, what I've found is both a guest and a host is the, the um, value, the, how good a podcast is, is truly dictated on how good the host is, Yeah, which is interesting. You can, you can make guests um, very good or very bad based on how you ask questions and transition and different things like that. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Thank cool, you. man. Good luck. Can't wait to hear the podcast. Good to see you, Max. Great questions. Julian, I think Julian needs to come back. He has a follow-up question. Cool. <laughs> Get you back in the mix. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm warmed up now, guys. Cool, cool. Got kind Bring of an in, in the weeds question on the, this one, but... Okay, so we work with uh, clients that sell like $100,000 in upward products, um, mm -hmm. all manufacturing, all custom engineered. There's a lot of consultation and education involved in those in those um, in, in those deals. Yep, they take a very long time. So a hypothesis that I have that I I'm not able to prove at this point is. When there's a lot of education and consultation involved in the service, the content mix, if you want to call it that, for paid social distribution should lean more heavily towards education and consultation. Um, just curious to hear your take on that. I think that versus, sorry, versus, you know, for example, driving them to a case study or a product page, um, et cetera. The bottom of the funnel. I do, I do think that there's actually a place for both running in tandem here. Like that's what I would do. Um, it's not like I personally don't see it as too much different than 
selling software to some selling complex software that requires seven stakeholders and a long implementation um, and maybe like a migration of data and a different in a custom integration. Like that's what happens when you sell enterprise SaaS too. And so I don't see them as that much different. I just think that the manufacturers of those types of products refuse to, um, to admit that because it, it, they choose to do all of the consultation at the sales level as opposed to the marketing level, which is where their comfort zone is. And so like, how could you put together a, you know, product builder on your website? it would cannibalize your existing sales channel or your distribution or different things like that. And so companies, especially in this industry, I have conversations, I do not work with them. Um, but we do, um, I do have a lot of conversations with them just to learn because I spent a lot of time in those different industries earlier in my career. And those companies are 100% trapped based on their distribution model. And until you fix your distribution model, you are a slave to your distributors. And so, that's I've, I've watched companies that go from, you know, three or four exclusive distributors throughout the United States where the distributor takes 30 points and doesn't do a lot of work. Um, and it's really hard to take that over and build your own field sales and service organization, but you recoup the 30% margin. You have all the data, you control your destiny, you control your customer experience. It's much better to scale. That's my, that's my two cents. Um, and then how would you lean to the content? Um, I'm not sure that the consultation service education versus promotional, I actually agree that I, I think that there are both. I think on organic, you lean more consultative and on paid, you lean more promotional. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's a scale or spectrum. Cool. Thank you. So. Hope that helps. I kind of, uh, Thank you. <laughs> kind, kind of, kind of attack the distribution model, but in like, uh, I'll, I'll talk about this for a minute. Like the, this, um, this type of stuff is really interesting. And I was, I was talking to some, I was actually interviewing someone today and I was like, I love marketing for B2B because all I need to do is just go look at what's already happened in B2C and then just move it here. Cause no B2B marketer will look and see it, but it's all, everything has already happened. And so, if you take that same mindset and you look at companies that manufacture products and sell them through distribution and you just look at what's happening in the channel conflict of B2C right now, where all of these companies are trying to go direct to consumer while they're also selling through retailers, while the retailers try to private label and compete with the brands that they sell and all of these different things happening, the exact same thing is going to happen in B2B. If you think that you're selling a blood pressure cuff to a hospital, through a through Owens and Minor right now, and they're doing a ton of volume, and you don't think that they're already working on private labeling a blood pressure cuff and cutting you out, like <laughs> distributors that are not doing that are not smart. Distributors will start to compete with the the, the manufacturers that they distribute for right now. It's just a matter of time. So I'm, I'm really interested to see how that plays out. And I'm super interested in pulling this clip back in seven years and, and looking at what I just said, because that, that will want, that will 100% happen. Predicting the future on demand gen live. <laughs> it's not the future though. It's already happened. You know what I mean? <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> we got through, we got through all our questions. I don't know if cool. anyone has any up or if you have any good closing thoughts, uh, this was great. Um, full, 
full AMA today, which was cool. I, yeah. we, we jumped right into it. Um, maybe we'll do, I mean, we'll see who we got on, but Paul, if you're, if you're still here, you must have, you must have liked it. But like, do you, do you think that we should keep thumbs up for keep like more like straight question answer or thumbs down for more of like free form stuff? Come on, come on, people help me out. We got thumbs up for Q&A. Okay, perfect. So moving forward, we'll start to get right into it and move away from my long monologues at the beginning. But I'll try and throw, <laughs> I'll try and throw one in to keep it interesting every once in a while. People like your rants. We can sprinkle them in. <laughs> cool. So I hope it was helpful, everyone. Again, appreciate every Tuesday. Today was, I think, episode 36 or 37. So we're going to try um, and make it one full year, which will essentially be the anniversary of when the country shut down because of COVID. So it'll be cool to look back in a year and see all of the progress that we've made and all the stuff that you can, you all can reflect and look at all the things that you've learned, um, which will be cool. And I know it hasn't been like the greatest year, um, but hopefully we have some silver linings that we can, we can look on. So looking forward to that next week, we will be back at seven 30 um, for that. And so I'll be here and then the next one I'll be at a surprise location. So we can, um, we can stay tuned for that. <laughs> All right, everyone. Hope you have a great rest of your week. Good to see you. Hope to see you back again soon. Take care, everyone. Bye.